Welcome to Screen Therapy. I'm your host, Jason Schurz. In October of 2018, I found myself in the hospital, sitting across from a psychiatrist who was telling me I had bipolar. I was sent home with a bunch of medication and laid on the couch for a week. I had my iTunes library on shuffle, trying to shake the hornet's nest from my head. Ever since I was a kid, I've been using loud music as a form of therapy. Punk rock and mental health have always been connected. This podcast looks at that connection through the lens of different guests. This is Screen Therapy. Why do certain people search out the punk scene? What is it about the fury and chaos and volume that attracts them? Seth Lorenzi spent his formative years in the punk hardcore scene in Washington, D.C., playing in bands like Vile Cherubs in the 80s and Circus Lupus in the 90s. Seth saw a lot of punks that were dealing with what he calls a broken contract. The idea that the fair and just world they envisioned had been crushed in front of them and they were left to pick up the pieces. Being in the punk scene and expressing their discontent with the world around them allowed punks to rewrite their broken contract and find a way to become themselves again, to feel comfortable in their own skin. For Seth, it's about the way he lives his life. He may not dress and act like a stereotypical punk. He may not spend his time at all-ages shows surrounded by sweaty bodies bouncing off of each other. But he's a punk with a rewritten contract. We all can be. My name is Seth Lorenzi. I grew up in Washington, D.C. and got into music very early, eventually ended up discovering the punk scene there around, I guess, mid-80s or so. I was kind of adjacent to the punk scene at first. I was really into 60s music. That was the stuff you would still hear on radio in those days, like the early Who singles and Kink singles and stuff like that. I just remember standing by the clock radio and just feeling pinned to the spot by those just short, sharp songs blasting through. But it was kind of like an alternative to punk. I think it was perfect for people like me who loved aggressive sounding music, but didn't want to get punched in the face by skinheads. In those days, at least every city, it seemed like had their own 60s punk scene. So when I started playing in bands, this is around 1985 or so, that's what I gravitated towards. I just felt like there was something about how how mysterious it was. You know, you couldn't really hear those songs on the radio. There also was not really college radio or underground radio in D.C. So you really had to kind of know someone or stumble upon it. But that was it. That's how I got into to being in bands and playing in music. And then punk sort of revealed itself to me 
all around me. DC had a really thriving scene at that point. In fact, it was on the upswing even in the mid 80s. There had been that first burst of of hardcore, very late 70s, early 80s. All the bands that you know, like Minor Threat and SOA, Void, The Faith, et cetera, et cetera. But that had sort of died down by then. And in the mid 80s, there was a, another wave building. Bands like Rites of Spring and Embrace and Grey Matter and Ignition. That would eventually lead to what happened in the early 90s, the high point of DC punk. So one of the things that you and I share is this idea of, did punk find us or did we find punk? Yeah. And that comes up in the Scream Therapy book, and it also comes up in some of the articles that you've written for your website. I'm just wondering if you could reflect on that a little bit. I know that you've got a more definitive answer than I have. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my feeling is that no one that I knew, certainly, in that time came to punk without some kind of, I like to think of it as a broken contract. This idea that, especially when you're a young kid, there's this notion of how life is supposed to work. And you see that notion on television. You see it reflected in ads or in books of how things are supposed to work out. And that the notion that we live in a just and a fair world. I think every single person in the punk scene had had a break with that vision. They came to it with something being broken, with some notion that things weren't really the way that, that we have been told they were. The punk scene was a place to sort of rewrite that. Some people took that really literally and sort of created this universe of record labels and bookstores and nightclubs and community spaces. And other people didn't really take it very far at all. There was also this sort of self-destructive, that's another response to the sense of a broken world. But I'll say this, I'm, I'm 52 now, and those relationships and those bonds with the people that I formed as a young teenager are more alive than ever. They've really sustained me long after I left DC, long after I left the punk scene and sort of made my way in the world. It's such a gift to be able to circle back to those relationships now and understand what a few friends and what a few very generous adults gave me at a time when I really needed it. I recently talked to Bill Wilson of Blackout Records about the New York scene that he was involved with and his thoughts on people coming into the punk scene and hardcore scene with some sort of, he called it damage. I'm not sure if I particularly enjoy that term, but I'm thinking of the band in DC photo book that came out and is this amazing collection of photos and the folks in those photos and, you know, the dress of them and the way that they, the smiles on their faces. And from your experience being there and, and seeing a lot of those bands and people, did you feel like there was some damage there coming in that that was a place where they could find some of their healing? That's a really good question. I get what you're saying about the word damage. It, it sure is a pointy one. But on some levels, it's hard to disagree, too. I don't know. Whatever. It's semantics at a certain point. I think there was such a gamut of people. There were people who were actively doing things. They were making a new world for themselves. And I think about people who were who had cottoned on to or even invented the notion of straight edge, the notion that, that they were going to navigate life unaltered, and create something with clear eyes. And of course, like one shining example of that is Discord Records, which has been going for decades now and put out and continues to put out some really vital music. There's also a lot of people that do not get written about who sort of have dropped from the story for various reasons. You know, one memory of being in the DC scene was that, you know, every six months or so, 
someone would OD fatally. And that was also the 80s. Heroin was a bigger deal. And maybe that's just the notion of being around a lot of people who have felt marginalized. I had a really deep experience a couple weekends ago. I drove down to California and reunited with my high school band, which was the one that sort of bridged the gap between 60s punk and the hardcore that was happening around us. The band was called the Vile Cherubs. I think just getting to reconnect at the age I am now and understand that there were a lot of really hurt and marginalized people around us. I mean, being in a punk scene in the 80s, I can't compare it. I'm not really in a punk scene now. It really was a place where some pretty desperate people found a home. And that could be scary at times. Being around people who are really intent on self-destroying and causing destruction is scary. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I think now on the other side of it, I can also see the, the beauty of the home that some people created for those people. And not all of them, frankly, have made it. But at least for a moment there, my sense is that they found a place where they felt they could belong. You lost your mom at a really early age. And do you think that was something to do with, you know, looking for a different kind of a scene or, or community that was empathic and sensitive? And you talk about being a seer and a feeler. How much did losing your mom play into that later in your life? Absolutely. I mean, that, that was it. I talked about the notion of a broken contract. That was it right there. You're going to grow up in this family container and have this kind of experience. And I was, what, four and a half when my mom died. That was a turning point. The fact that my mom died, my mom was bitten by the wrong mosquito. We were on a family vacation in Georgia in a place that's actually infamous for its mosquito infestations. And she contracted encephalitis and died about three weeks later. The way I kind of frame it now is that it's not so much that she died, although of course it is, but it's who I was left to. My dad and my grandmother, who lived with us at the time, were Holocaust survivors. And they just lacked the kind of emotional architecture to put what had happened into context. In retrospect, I think it was that that was maybe more damaging than my mom having died. But but either way, that's when the contract was broken. And in memory, at least, where I flashed to next is a few years later in the election of 1980. Maybe too much of a leap, but this is how I frame it. That was the first sort of political moment I was aware of. And I remember watching television over my dad's shoulder as the camera panned across this sort of sea of white faces all cheering on Ronald Reagan, who of course won in a landslide. And my father didn't say anything about what was happening. He didn't really talk politics in that way, but I really had a, that was a connection for me with what had happened with my mother dying, that there was something very ominous about to happen that seemed so wrong to me. I mean, again, I grew up in Washington, DC. It's a very segregated city. It was the first majority black major city in the country. And a lot of people had the sense that Congress sort of punished us for that. Anyway, I'm watching this TV footage and seeing all these people cheering on Reagan and just having this sense of like, oh, no, 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 this is not it. Like, this is some guy who clearly, like these people don't care about black people. Reagan was so militant in this idea of like, oh yeah, 
you want cold war with the Soviets? We're going to give you more bombs. We're going to give you more missiles. And just the wrongness of it somehow connected in my mind with having lost my mother and this idea that, oh, things really don't work the way we were told they do. I just can't help but think about how certain people have that switch, that they can see these things. And I'm thinking of Fugazi as probably the most obvious example of most bands will take the money and go and do whatever with it. Or, and they were putting all the money back into local charity, local organizations. Some people do that kind of thing. Some people don't. Some people see that Ronald Reagan's standing up there and almost like a Hitler-esque figure in some ways. Some people, no questioning at all. That's where I bring it back to the punk scene or maybe just the concept of punk. This idea that some people can see that stuff. Social media, some people seeing as being just this amazing thing. Some people see it as being this horrible thing. And what's that little switch and why does it go off with certain people? And is it because of how they are brought up? Is it because of what they had to get away from in their lives? Well, I don't want to spend too much energy on on Ronald Reagan. <laughs> yeah, let's not. <laughs> but I will say this. I mean, he's he's definitely the most punk president in that he inspired <laughs> most of the music and art that we take to be you know, classic punk at this point. Other we, than Bush, he also brought a swell of uh, punk songs. Bush did songs. something too. I read a book by a fellow Canadian of yours, Gabor Mate. Gabor mm-hmm. is actually Hungarian, and my family is Hungarian too. He, There's a number of commonalities. One of Gabor Mate's books, When the Body Says No, there's a chapter on Ronald Reagan, and it really, really affected me. What he was pointing out was that Reagan also came from a very emotionally and psychically confusing background. His father was alcoholic. There was a lot of lies. There was a lot of disappointment. I don't know if his father was physically violent or not. Basically, what Monte is saying is that you know he grew up in this environment too, a traumatic environment. And the way he metabolized it was to be incredibly normative. There's no hard edges. I'm just one of the guys. I'm not, I don't have this damage. I don't have this these emotional wounds. After reading that, it was impossible for me not to feel compassion for him, which was incredibly frustrating because uh, it's the last thing I wanted to feel towards Ronald Reagan. But it really did change my feeling. I look back on the last 40 plus years or so, how wrong so many things on a societal level have gone and how much of that I personally pin on Ronald Reagan and the policies that he stood up for. But Again, it's impossible for me to ignore the very hurt young person kind of at the center of that. That passes the baton to you and what you read about in terms of connecting the ethos of punk with the notion of healthcare. And there's so many wounded people out there that maybe don't understand that they're wounded or don't understand that there's a different way to metabolize that kind of trauma and do something constructive with it. One of the things that really blew me away with writing the book was the mental health professionals that had a punk background as well. And I think a lot of punks when they were young are coming full circle. The things they learned in the punk scene around being empathic, around sensitivities and seeing what the real truth was around health and mental health. And now you got these folks who are psychiatrists and counselors and writers and it's super prevalent even in social work. People in town here most of them are punks. It's just like, wow. Yeah, no, that's global too. You know, I'm, I'm curious about 
the UK punk scene, for instance, and many of the people that I, I looked up to as a kid, I've sort of traced their stories and yeah, many of them, same thing, same thing. They're doing, they're doing the good work. I also want to return to something you said about being a feeler and a seer. And I think about the term shaman, which has a lot of kind of dodgy connotations, especially in the West. I think about white people basically appropriating indigenous culture, and you certainly don't need any introduction to that. But I think about shamanism as being kind of an archetype. It's a sort of template that people across time and people across different cultures can touch on. And to my understanding, a shaman is simply someone who has been separated from their tribe by illness, by trauma, by some broken contract that gives them the power to be seers and healers and people who either look into the future or people who divine the past or people who are or healers on, on different levels. And that's what I think of the punks being. Because again, those people who had those breaks and for better or worse, that break gave them the, the power of seeing and the power of being sensitive. And it's, it's ironic that of course, punk swaddles that sensitivity in aggression, in volume, in the trappings of fierceness. But at the heart of it, there is a real sensitivity too. And I think of the artists I most admired growing up in DC and they're sensitive people. <laughs> Absolutely. They're deep feelers. I don't know if that's what drew me to the scene, but that's what nailed me in it once I realized that the people were really just like me and they saw the same things I did. And you're a huge Lungfish fan and a lot of folks would say, oh, they're not a punk band. And I would say, absolutely, they're a punk band. shaman idea to me daniel higgs who is the singer of lungfish and a poet and just this amazing kind of force just thought about that as him being a shaman and other folks in the scene that are like that oh yeah no question about it absolutely absolutely one thing i noticed very early in the dc scene which which helped draw me to it was that by the time I came around, people were not wearing leather jackets and studs. People didn't have mohawks. I mean, sure, there are plenty of those around too. But I'm thinking of the people that I, I met who were like me playing in bands or doing record labels. They're fairly ordinary looking, to be honest. And that was really significant to me. It's hard to pin why exactly. Maybe it felt a little less threatening. There was a fair share of oddballs in there, but they were just people who were orienting towards doing something a little bit different and making something useful out of it and not spending all their energy on outwards rebellion. And I'd say Lungfish fit very much in that. When I met the band, Daniel was a tattoo artist, which is what he was best known for until the poetry and the writing and the music took over. In the 80s, especially, being in the tattoo scene was really marginal. 
you know, it was not something you saw on a lot of people. Like the people who had tattoos were sailors, soldiers, cops, cons. That was just another of those weird ways before mass culture had picked up on it, that the punk scene and outsider culture really brushed up against each other in this kind of interesting way. The biggest misconception that I butt up against with writing about punk and being a punk for so many years and looking normal and not having spikes and mohawks is that punk for a lot of people means that that's the image that immediately comes up is the sort of sex pistols and then the, just those cliche and to try to explain to someone about Fugazi and I hope I did a pretty decent job of it when I wrote about them and have in the past it's almost counterintuitive to the fact that punk has this you know this aggression and this energy Fugazi has that, but how do you explain how they have it and in what way they have it? I do think a lot of people around me had figured out by that point that if they did want to get what they were writing about actually listened to and heard, it would probably go down a lot easier coming from a fairly ordinary looking person than it would be from someone with liberty spikes and you know a studded belt or whatever. I have a hard time talking about punk rock without people jumping to those conclusions. Well, something that really struck me reading your book was how many different eras of punk there are now, too. I remember hearing about the Sex Pistols a couple of years, three or four, after they'd come and gone. And it still seemed very fresh to me. That's just the age I am. And a lot of the scenes that you're talking about and living through in your book are far later than that. I mean, the Sex Pistols might as well be grandparents at that point, (laughs) because, I mean, I think they technically are. So... People younger than us must have a, a more nuanced, a more modern version of it. I don't really know. You're totally correct. Yeah, they do. It's really amazing. A lot of folks say there's nothing going on anymore. And people our age is like, well, there's no scene. There's always going to be a punk scene no matter what, because you always have folks that are looking for that. Yeah, it's just not going to look like or sound like what you understood it to mm-hmm. be. But yeah, absolutely. You've also talked about how punk is can be insular and bringing those ethics and ethos to the, let's call it the outside world. We touched on the fact that a lot of folks in social work and mental health uh, have a connection to punk rock or grew up as punks. And you've also mentioned that you don't want to be like hoarding seven inch records and, you know, like hold up in your house, listening to the old school stuff. What can we do to use what we learned in punk and then to apply that to helping others, connecting with others? For me, I am steeped in punk. Punk is an orientation. It's not a style of clothes that I wear. Um, It's just a way I see the world. So even if I've gotten rid of most of my records and (laughs) I don't have the hair to do a mohawk anyway, that's just baked in. I call myself a seer and a feeler, which is not, that's an expression of fact. It's just an expression of orientation, right? Like I'm a sensitive person and I'm aware of the currents of hurt that are running around me. So for me, what does that mean, being a punk and having the ability to see these things? It means that I'm comfortable being the one that reaches out and breaks through the fourth wall. And whether that's with my neighbors, organizations I work with here in town, it's understanding that there are all these artificial walls that we've constructed around each other and around ourselves, whether through trauma, whether through societal messaging that says we shouldn't hang out with or talk with people like us. I think anything that has any any hope of changing our relationships with each other for the better, it really is on the micro level. It is 
being willing to have a conversation with someone who makes you uncomfortable or showing up for someone who's in need or in, or an organization that has a mission that resonates with you. It's really these tiny things, especially as life around us feels so much more difficult to grasp, fragmented, fractal, broken by tools like social media that tend to separate us, not keep us together. It's just remembering every day to reach out on a human level and a tangible level with the people around me and try to keep those connections strong. What I want in my relationships is intimacy. And my way to that is vulnerability. I think it really demands it. And that's so counter to so much of the messaging about how we carry ourselves in society, especially as males. That doesn't really jibe with the program. For me, at least, it's really the only way in. When you're writing, whether it's your blog or your books, does your background in punk feed into that writing? Do you see the connection between it in a tangible way? I almost don't because it just is my perspective and my worldview. I just finished a book, which is not explicitly punk at all, but it's very much about the notion of the broken contract and navigating life as a deep feeler. The next major writing project will be a book about my time in the DC punk scene. Oh, cool. which is, yeah, very explicitly about that time and those experiences. That was my conversation with writer and DC punk scene alumni, Seth Lorenzi, sethlorenzi.com. For more episodes of Screen Therapy, go to screentherapyhq.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Big news, the Screen Therapy book is available now. Screen Therapy, a punk journey through mental health, tells my story and the stories of others who use punk as a catalyst for mental health. Like this podcast, it links the community-minded punk scene with the mental wellness of the punks who belong to it. To order the book, go to ScreenTherapyHQ.com. For merch, check out the newly opened store at ScreenTherapyHQ.com store. And for even more designs, check out Screen Therapy on TeePublic. Okay, enough promoting. It's time for some thanking. Thank you for listening to Screen Therapy. Doing this podcast and talking to folks about punk rock and mental health has been a crucial part of my own mental stability, and it means so much to me that you're out there listening. Screen Therapy is created in the Cathet region of coastal British Columbia, Canada, on the traditional territory of the Klahoman Nation. Contact me at ScreenTherapyHQ.com or email me at ScreenTherapyPodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Let's talk about punk rock and mental health. Until next time... 
Take care and be well.